Um, The scripture reading is from Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was, ter- was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. This is God's word. Uh, good evening. Good to see so many of you here this evening. Uh, let, me, uh, let me just introduce myself. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer along with Jeff. It's such an encouragement uh, to have a group gather on Sunday evenings uh, for a number of reasons. It's an encouragement to our church uh, as we gather on Sunday mornings because we're full And so part of what we're hoping that we'll see happen is that some of our people will feel the freedom to uh, wait and come and worship here with you on Sunday evenings, uh, take a few rear ends out of the pew to allow us to fill them with other people because we are desperate to to be able to do that. But also just an encouragement knowing what God's doing among you and continues to do in you uh, to prepare you for the work he's called you to uh, in Southwest Winter Haven. So we are grateful uh, for uh, for you, and I am grateful for the opportunity to, to share with you tonight. We are beginning a series uh, this Advent season, which is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas out of the Gospel of Luke. We're actually going to be in the Gospel of Luke, whether it's me preaching or Jeff, for a long time to come. Uh, here's what I want you to know. As, as, we, as we come to these words, as, as um, Marissa just read to us, it has been 400 years, 400 years since the Lord spoke the words uh, through the prophet Malachi. 400 years. Nothing from God. No word, no prophets, nothing. 400 years of silence. Now, can you imagine what it must have felt like for the people? The waiting that they had to endure. 400 years. 
And so this morning as we come here, and here are the words that break the silence of that 400 years. And we begin this Advent season by looking at this Gospel of Luke. Now, a word about Advent, because some of you may not be familiar with what we mean by that. Uh, when I was a teenager, by the time I had become a teenager, my mom had resorted to taking my sister and I shopping the day after Thanksgiving for our Christmas presents for the year. So she would give us just a certain amount of money. Here, you have this much money to spend and set us free at Lakeland Square Mall, back when Lakeland Square Mall was a pretty cool place to be. It was the new thing in Polk County uh, back in, the, I guess, the 80s. And, uh, and we thought that was, you know, you drove all the way to Lakeland to go there, and that was pretty neat. And so we would go, and we would spend our money, and it was a really good deal because we got the things. It ensured we got the things that we wanted for Christmas, but it was a really bad deal. It was hard because we would buy them, and then she would bring them home. She would take, you know, she would take them from us and bring them home and wrap them and put them under the tree, and they would just be there taunting us for an entire, you know, four weeks leading up to Christmas morning. So every day we'd walk past them in the, the living room or whatever it might be, and we knew there are the presents that we so desperately want, and yet it wasn't uh, that we could open them until we got to Christmas morning. But then Christmas morning came, and there was so much joy. Because after all, we had waited for so long, right? I mean, a whole month to have these things that we had bought. Now, on a small scale... A small scale, that that is the reality of our lives. There's something coming. And on the calendar, it is Christmas. But for Christians, it's all that Christmas promises, which will come true at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of time. what, What awaits us there, when he comes again, has already been purchased. It's, according to Peter, an inheritance that awaits us in heaven. It's being kept there for us. But for now, we must wait. And while we wait... While we wait, there's a great sadness and pain that we still have to deal with and that will one day come untrue and will be transformed into joy. Now that's the theme of this first few chapters of the Gospel of Luke. It's the theme of our Advent season this year, joy. And I'm grateful that it's the the theme because I need to do so much work in this area of my life. And I hope I'm not alone. But I know some of you, so I know I'm not alone. Right? We are people that need God to give us joy. And so I'm grateful for the promise of verse 14 there that we just read, where the angel says to Zechariah, you will have great joy and gladness. Man, what a great promise. And so for four weeks, we get to talk about joy from all different kinds of angles. I'm really excited about that. Now this morning, or excuse me, this evening, see i got to get out of that habit. This evening, uh, we want to talk about the thing that really steals our joy away because we see it here in Zechariah. That there's something about his experience that really steals his joy away from him. So we're going to talk about the joy thief uh, this evening. And so three points in your outline that you see there. I want to talk about, first, the thief of joy. Secondly, the source of joy. And then thirdly, how we have to fight for it. Okay? So all of those things from this passage, again, we're looking big picture. We're not going to get, we're not going to get kind of down into the nitty-gritty of every verse. We'd be here forever if we did. But this evening, just those three, those three major points. The thief of joy, which is Zechariah's cynicism and his fear and his unbelief. Uh, the source of joy, what we'll see is hope in God and Christ and in the way we have to fight for it, okay? So let's look first at the thief, the thief of joy. Now, we're introduced in verse 5 to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And there are many things going right for this family. I mean, we, the, the pedigree that we are given there in those verses is pretty uh, striking. Okay, but there's one great sadness that overshadowed all of the good things that are happening to them. And we find it in verse 7. We're told, but they have no child. 
because Elizabeth was barren. Now, this was a great personal tragedy, and it would have been for any family at the time, but particularly painful for this couple. And the reason we know that is because of Zechariah's response to the angel's pronouncement down in verse 13. The angel says there, if you look with me, he says, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And what was Zechariah's response? Do you see it there? It's the most important part of the passage. He says, well, how shall I know this? Well, it's innocent enough, right? Or, or is it? Because, see, the text seems to indicate otherwise when the angel responds to Zechariah rather harshly, he makes it so that he can't speak. It's a punishment. Verse 20, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their time. Now, what is this? What's going on here? And here's, here's what's happening. When Zechariah gets the answer to his prayers, this son that they've been waiting so long for, it's fascinating that his response is not joyful gratitude. It's cynicism and unbelief. And though it's, though it's not obvious at first, that's what it is. It's cynicism and unbelief. And so we could translate, we could translate his how shall I know? How shall I know this in verse 18? We could translate it, if he was texting, it would be something like L-O-L. That's hilarious. Why should I believe you? And and the problem with texting is you can't convey that attitude, but that was definitely his attitude. And you can't read it here and hear it either, but that's what he's saying is, is why should I believe what you're saying to me with a little bit of a harshness underneath it and mocking sarcasm? And that's really what's going on in, in his heart. Now, Kate... D. Camillo has, has written a number of wonderful stories for children and adults, but my favorite is a book I read with my girls not long ago called The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. Uh, and, I, and I guess somebody told me after I did this this morning, and I guess I have to warn this is somewhat of a spoiler alert, so please forgive me. It's still worth picking up the book and reading it, but it doesn't work unless I kind of tell you how it ends, okay? So, sorry. Okay, I'll just say that. But um, it's, about, it's a story about a China rabbit doll who is loved by a little girl named Abilene, but then lost. And afterward, Edward goes through a series of owners and a number of different heartbreaking experiences. And so when we first meet him in the story, he is proud and vain and full of self-importance. But what happens is, as the story goes on, he, um, he begins to soften and eventually he learns to love. But this is short-lived because one of the little girls that he finds himself, you know, connected to, she find, his, her brother finds him in a garbage dump and then brings him home and the little girl falls in love with him. But the little girl that he grows to love dies uh, of influenza and, and the experience of watching her die makes him bitter and hard. Uh, here's how the author puts it. He, she says, he prided, Edward prided himself on not hoping, on not allowing his heart to lift inside of him. He prided himself on keeping his heart silent. Immobile, closed tight. I'm done with hope, he thought. But then what happens in the story is he meets another doll in a doll repair shop. And this little doll who comes in after he's been there for a while and obviously she's been discarded and the doll maker, the doll mender is putting her back together in order to resell her. And he sets her down on the counter next to him and the doll is, she, she says to him, she, she starts to talk immediately to him uh, in the fantastical way that dolls talk in little children's stories. She says, I wonder who will come for me this time. Someone always comes. Who will it be? And this annoys the rabbit, Edward. He says, I don't care if anyone comes for me. Which, of course, wasn't true. 
But you see, he was protecting himself. He'd shut down his heart, you see. And so the new doll answers him with words that are really the point of the whole story to begin with. She says, well, that's dreadful. There's no point in going on if you feel that way. No point at all. You must be filled with expectancy. You must be awash in hope. You must wonder who will love you and whom you will love next. I'm done with being loved, Edward told her. I'm done with loving. It's too painful. And then the little doll looks at him, and, 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 and her answer is brilliant. She says, but Edward, where's your courage? And when I read about Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, I thought of Edward Tulane, and about so many of us who have experienced a great sadness that has left us without the courage to hope. I read this story, and I want to say to this man, where is your courage, Zechariah? I mean, why, what's happened to you? Why have you given up? That's an angel you're talking to. Don't you know that? I mean, and look at what the angel says. I love this part of the story. Zechariah says, how, how, how am I going to know? What, what, why should I trust you? And then Gabriel, I can imagine Gabriel kind of bowing up and becoming this, you know, I am Gabriel, right? I come from the Lord, and there's this big presence that fills the room. as if to say, Zechariah, who do you think you're talking to? I came from God, out of the presence of God, to talk to you. Do you think old age and infertility is going to stand in his way? The Red Sea didn't. The armies of Israel's enemies didn't. But Zechariah's heart is shut down, and he doesn't care anymore. He's done with hoping. And instead, he's become cynical. And it's the ultimate in what we've been talking about in the morning, and I think you have here too. It's the ultimate in bottom-up living. Throughout the years, Elizabeth's infertility and the pain of having to live without a son has become the lens through which Zechariah has begun to look at all of life and even to view God by. And that's unbelief. Life, for him, life has become full of disappointment and discouragement, not full of possibility. I mean, life is full of discouragement and disappointment, not full of possibility for Zechariah. He's thinking about God peripherally. What's most real is his pain. And where has God been through the struggle? What's God been doing about the hardship that he's undergone? Do you see? He's living from the bottom up. And that's cynicism. And the problem with cynicism is, cynicism and unbelief is the thief of joy. See, if you believe that life is full of disappointment instead of possibility, if you believe that down every hallway there's a slamming door as Carrie Underwood would sing, if you believe that, you'll go through... You'll go through life in self-protection mode. She goes on in that song to say, no way out, no one to come and save me. Right? You'll believe that. That's what you'll think. And so everybody, you'll, you'll think everybody, even God is conspiring against me, slamming doors in my face. Right? And I, Man, that's a hard place to be. You'll be desperately trying to keep your heart silent and immobile and close tight. But what happens then? See, cynicism begins to distort and twist the soul. You begin to expect the worst. You begin to see the very worst in other people. And it it adds a bitter aftertaste to every experience. And as soon as it starts to get a little bit better, instead of enjoying it, all you can do is wonder when the next tidal wave of disappointment is going to hit. It makes you miserable. Like the older brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You remember this boy? The boy's angry with his father. He thinks that he's been treated unfairly, that he deserves more than he's been given. He believes that his father is slamming doors in his face, when in fact what he has to learn is that the father is not slamming doors in his face. The father's arms are open wide as he says, Son, 
all I have is yours. Everything that's mine belongs to you. Right? You're wrong about me. And that's the root of our problem with joylessness. It's the cause for all of our unhappiness. We're wrong about God. We're wrong about his heart towards us. And so, if that's the thief, then we need to know the joy, the source of joy, okay? And the source of joy is the opposite. The source of joy is to, to be right about his heart. To be right about his heart and to be filled instead with hope. As the little doll in the doll mentor's shop has to remind Edward Tulane, it takes courage to hope. So how do you find enough courage to hope? Now, when Edward Tulane, and I, I hate to stick to the story, but it really is so good uh, that, that I think it's helpful. When he, he, when he lost hope, he had to be reminded by the doll that sat next to him in the doll mender's shop. Here's what she says to him. She says, open your heart, Edward. Someone will come for you. Someone always comes. Someone will come for you. Somebody always comes. And a strange thing happened to him. Despite all of his fears, he began to really believe it and to hope. Here's how the author puts it again. Edward Tulane waited. He repeated the old doll's words over and over until they wore a smooth groove of hope in his brain. Someone will come. Someone will come for me. And uh, what's fascinating is someone did. One day, a little girl walked into the doll mender's shop to buy Edward, but the best part of the story is that the little girl who wanted so desperately to buy him was the daughter of the first little girl who had ever loved him. His darling, the girl that he loved, Abilene. And there, at the end of the story, she stood before him as she did at the beginning. And and the moral is, throughout all of his travels, throughout all the years, throughout all the pain and the disappointment and the heartache that he experienced, he had never been forgotten. He had been loved the whole time. And it turns out, someone does come. And this is the lesson that Zechariah has, has to learn, see? It's a lesson that he should have already known. <laughs> the irony of the story is uh, that the, the name Zechariah, uh, this man's name, means God remembers. But Zechariah has forgotten that God remembers. And it's our problem too. Our problem is that we forget that God remembers. That life is not a random collection of circumstances that have no meaning. It is rather an orchestration That was true for Edward Tulane. Each adventure got him to where he could be reunited with his long-lost Abilene. The little doll was right. There is reason to hope. We should be awash in it. We should be full of expectancy because God is at work loving us even when we don't have eyes to see it. I use this as an illustration on Thursday evening uh, and this morning um, to to try to illustrate this idea of God at work behind the scenes to bless and to, to, to love us. But back in in my day, 20 years ago or so, when I proposed to my wife, a man, if he was going to propose to a girl, it was pretty simple. You picked her up, you took her to a fairly nice restaurant. Uh, In the middle of dinner at some point, you got down on your knee and pulled out the ring and said, you know, will you you marry me? And about the only, as as varied as it got was just whether you were going to go to a really nice Italian restaurant or whatever, right? Just different kind of restaurant. Now, with the advent of social media and how public all things are, you get these guys who concoct these elaborate proposals, right? And then, of course, they post them on Facebook because that's why I do it, so that you can make it public. But, you know, and there's like 50 people involved and everybody's waiting and staged and they're doing, you know, they're, they're doing like their best Jets and Sharks impersonation or whatever it is and they're singing and bopping along and all of this 
works together to where they finally come out to the beach and there's the candlelit place where he can get down and the sun is setting perfectly in the background and it's all, I mean, you just stop and think, holy cow, this guy's done nothing else with his life for the last year but get ready for this five minutes that he had here with this girl. And I, I, you know, I admit I'm a sucker, so I've watched a few of those things. Or maybe I'm just a little girly, I don't know. But uh, I, I just am amazed at the amount of planning and thoughtfulness behind this and how all the friends get together and the family are in on it and the coordination of all the details. And I wonder what it must feel like for the woman to know how much time and energy and effort the man has put into this just to show her how much he loves her. Or if you've ever, Ashton and I were talking last night and she brought this up, or if you've ever had somebody throw you a surprise birthday party, right, where, you, you know, I, I, uh, I said this morning, I'm an introvert, so that terrifies me. And Ashley and I have kind of pinky, we turned 40 this year, we kind of pinky swore, no surprise, no surprise 40th birthday parties, right? We're, I mean, we're tracking, because we, the idea of 100 people in a room and I walk in and they all jump out and yell surprise scares me to death. Uh, I, I, my greatest dream is to be forgotten by the crowds, not to have everybody all paying attention to me. And so, but for some of us, it's kind of a neat thing to think, you know, I've, I'm being forgotten. And then you come to the restaurant or to the place wherever, and everybody's there, and you realize there's been all this planning that's been going on that you didn't even know about. And you think, wow, this is so neat. I'm, I'm so loved. I mean, what does it feel like to have been so unaware of all the planning going on around you? And that is, that is Zechariah's problem, is there's all kinds of planning going on around him that he's completely unaware of, and that's the reason why he's so cynical instead of so full of hope. And this is what Gabriel has to remind him, that God is doing uh, what he's always doing. What he's doing in giving him a son is just a continuation of the work that he started all the way back at the beginning pages of Genesis. Nearly all the commentators pick up on Gabriel's greeting where he says, verse 13, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. But what prayer? What has Zechariah been praying? Was it that he was praying for a son? I mean, we assume that's what the prayer, you know, was that the angels were referring to. But the commentators and the really smart guys suggest that he would have been praying for Israel's salvation, for the Messiah to come, which is, which is what his job would have been there in the temple on duty as he was, okay? And what he's told is that his son is going to be the answer both to his prayer but also to the greater prayer for the, for the sake of his people that he would be the great prophet who goes before the Lord's coming and prepares the people to receive him. And so what, what Zechariah has to learn is that throughout this 400 years that God has been silent, where there's been nothing, no indication of any thoughtfulness on God's part, God's not forgotten. He's been loving them the whole time. He's been preparing and planning for this day. And with the birth of John, that plan is going forward to bless his people and all of the earth through them. And so his working throughout all of redemptive history is a precedent for the way we can expect him to work in our individual lives to rescue and to save. And at the very end, all the way down in verse 25, as, as Elizabeth ponders and considers what's happened in this story, she says it perfectly. She says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. All this time, she says, I've thought he'd forgotten me, but he hadn't. He was there watching, working, orchestrating, and he's always doing this. Life is full of possibilities. There's always reason to hope because God is always doing more than I can know or imagine. But there's a second lesson that Zechariah had to learn here that points, excuse me, uh, that, and, and that lesson is not only is God always working, but there's a particular way that God is working, and that is that nothing is impossible with him. We meet with a barren woman here in verse 7, right? 
And we've met with barren women in the Bible before. Sarah in Genesis 11 and Hannah, the mother of Samuel in 1 Samuel 1 and Manoah's wife, uh, the judge Samson's mother in Judges 13. And undoubtedly all of those women saw their barrenness as a barrier to God's working in their life, just as Zechariah thought of Elizabeth. But what is interesting is, as you read the Bible, when you come across a barren woman, it's like a clue in the story that God is up to something and he's about to get involved. That someone's coming. Something's about to happen. It's right around the corner. And so we read, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And the people who knew their Bibles would have immediately thought, ah, ha, 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 I know what comes next. This is Abraham and Sarah. I wonder what God's about to do. And this is the way, consistently throughout the scriptures, God chooses to work. This is a miraculous birth, but it points to an even more miraculous birth, which comes later in chapter 1, that the coming of John the Baptist, born of Zechariah and Elizabeth, miraculously by God's power, him overcoming the barrenness and the infertility and the old age of a woman, the coming of John signals another coming, the coming of the one who will rescue from sin and death and cynicism and fear. And in Jesus Christ, the one we celebrate at Christmas, God himself, that's the miracle, God himself, has come to rescue and save, and his coming is the gospel of great joy for all people. Think about that. He's Emmanuel. He is God with us. The little doll in Edward Tulane's story was right. Someone always does come. Jesus' birth was an even more miraculous birth than John's. He was born not to a barren woman, He was born to a virgin woman, which is an even more impossible birth. And again, what God is saying in the way he chooses to work is nothing is too difficult for me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? See, this evening as we meditate upon God's creating the world out of nothing, that's our theme for this week. His bringing order out of chaos, his creation at the beginning of the world, ex nihilo, literally, there was nothing and then there was something. Well, the application for each one of us is this, is if you're here, he can take your nothing and he can make something exquisite out of it. He can take your small little group and he can build a church. He can take the five loaves and, or the, you know, the, the measly bread and fish that you bring to him and feed 5,000 with it. He can take the chaos of whatever crisis you're in and you're facing and he can create order and beauty and blessing. Your barrenness, whatever it might be, can become and does become, this is the miracle of the Gospels, that your barrenness becomes the place where he works most powerfully in your life. And so the words are fitting, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. See, if you're convinced that God remembers, that he sees and acts according to his promises to his people, and if you're convinced he works through weakness to accomplish his purposes, then you will have courage. Is God going to let me down? No, he can't. Is he going to forget me? Of course not. He would sooner cease to be God than to do that. But am I going to let me down? Is my sin and weakness and too much for him to overcome? No, because we learn God works through weakness and barrenness and failure and even sin. And that gives us courage to hope. But what does that mean? And it means to have the courage to imagine, hear me, to imagine life 
and even the painful parts of life that some of you might be going through right now at this moment to imagine life as full of possibilities rather than full of discouragements and disappointments. Full of possibilities. What's God going to do next? Who's going to come next? And that's hope. And that's the source of joy. To imagine a world under the care and control of a loving father who is orchestrating all of our circumstances to do us good. I mean, the older brother in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son was miserable because he saw only the goat he'd never received. It was just one thing in a long line of disappointments. His father and his younger brother and all the cosmos, I suppose, slamming doors in his face. But the key to his joy was to hear the words, All I have is yours. See, God wants to bless you and do you good, and he is actively working to make it so. Let that be the lens through which you look at the rest of your life. And then life will become full of possibility at what he might do rather than full of disappointment at what he has not done to this point. Your circumstances are not your reality. God's promises are, and that's the key to joy. The key to joy is to take your circumstances and to look at them through the lens of God's past faithfulness and his future promises. That's faith. Faith is to look at your present in light of God's past faithfulness and his future promises. My circumstances are not my reality because God's always at work in a thousand ways I can't see or understand. And his heart towards me is great. And that's the key to joy. And that's the promise of this passage. Joy. Look at verse 14 again. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. You will be a joy and through you there will be joy for others as well. I'm going to finish in just a minute. But as we think about what it means to fight for this joy. There's a line at the end of the return of the king. The third book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Jeff and I have a contest to see who could quote Lord of the Rings the most. So, But this, this is one of my favorites from the very end. Where Pippin, one of the hobbits, looks at Gandalf, the great wizard. And at first he sees only the lines of care and sorrow from the long journey they've been on. But then as he looks again, this is Tolkien's way of putting it. He says... He began to notice that underneath the weariness and the sadness, here are his words, that there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth, enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. That's great. It's a picture of Christian joy. I have a friend like that. His name's Bob. Uh, When Bob laughs, it sets off a chain reaction of joy. Now, the reason is because he has one of the funniest laughs you've ever heard in your entire life. I mean, it's one of those, I mean, one of those things, and you just feel sorry for him, but you can't help it. You just kind of start smiling. Like, if he's okay with it, I'm okay with it. Let's just have a good time, right? And it's great. But Bob, my friend, there's so much joy in him that he infects whatever crowd of people he's with. And I, you know, I think about that, and that's how I want to live too. That's the joy that I so long for, the joy that's the fruit of the Spirit, But too often instead, what happens in my life is my unhappiness sets off a chain of reaction of unhappiness around me. Oh, we were meant to live with joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, the scripture says. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. The gospel is the gospel of joy. It's good news of great joy for all people that angels announce in Luke 2. And so as Christians, we should be known for joy. Now, one illustration of this, and then I'm going to finish up. In the book of Acts, one of the things that stands out is the joy of the early church, the early Christians. It's everywhere. Joy's everywhere. But my favorite story is in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas have been thrown into prison for sharing their faith. And Luke records this. He says, about midnight, they were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now think about this for just one second. Okay, it's a picture of Christian joy. 
the fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom to laughing. They've been, they've been attacked by the crowds. They've been beaten severely. They've been thrown into prison. It's so bad they have to put them kind of in solitary confinement because they're afraid the people are going to break in and kill them. They've shackled them to the walls. And it's midnight. After that day, it's midnight. How, much of, how many of you do your, best, you, know, you do your best stuff at midnight? By midnight, I'm done. Don't talk to me. I'm out. And so all of that going on, it's midnight, and here they are. What are they doing? They're singing. Such joy. And it's significant what Luke says. He says about midnight, after they've been beaten and thrown into prison and shackled to the wall, and now it's the end of the day and they're exhausted, at midnight they were praying and singing the hymns to God. Listen to this. And the prisoners were listening to them. The other prisoners were listening. Their joy was evangelistic. I mean, who would be joyful? Nobody's ever been in prison and been joyful. That's supernatural joy. And so what I want you to see is just two points of application. First, our joylessness is a problem, but the call to to have joy is an opportunity. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book, Spiritual Depression, because he said an unhappy Christian is a contradiction in terms. He said too many people have the impression that to be a Christian means that you resign yourself to being unhappy. And that's a horrible recommendation for the gospel. And he's right. I mean, what if Paul and Silas were there in prison throwing a big pity party for themselves? And the other prisoners were listening. They would have thought, eh, it's nothing new about that. But when they saw their joy, when they heard their singing, they knew they were experiencing something supernatural. And so, parents, dads, I'm a dad, so let me say this to the dads. Dad, I, I hope you realize that you're evangelizing your kids with your joy. You're communicating worth to them through your joy. What do they see you get excited about? They will naturally begin to believe that that, whatever it is, is the source. That source of joy is the most important thing in life. So their joy will naturally follow yours. We were made, uh, excuse me, we've made holiness in Christian circles about all the rules you have to follow. But what about joy? Joy is holy. Christian joy is holy. And we don't think to work hard for joy. We don't think to make it a matter of our sanctification, but that's the the last point of application I would make is that the only way you get it, the only way you get it is you have to take yourself in hand. You have to fight for it. That's what Martin Lord Jones has really taught me. You have to fight for this. You have to fight for what Zechariah is experiencing here. You have to handle yourself. Here are his words. He says, we must take ourselves in hand. We must not lie down and commiserate with ourselves. We must do something about it. We must talk to ourselves instead of letting ourselves talk to us. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? That's a great line. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He goes on, the main art of the spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to dress yourself. You have to preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to yourself, to your soul, why are you so downcast? What business have you to be so upset? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself. Say to yourself, hope in God. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who he is and what God is and what he has done and what he has pledged himself to do. It's one of the major goals of my life, to be disciplined with my joy, to not settle for just being grumpy, but to take myself in hand And it's something I pray for us as a church and for you, that our theology, hear me, that our theology and our countenance would line up. Do you understand what I mean by that? 
our theology and our countenance. A lot of you have not been around very long, so one of my favorite things to say is, if, if you're a Christian, then you believe the gospel to be true, but if you believe the gospel to be true in your heart, would you please notify your face? That our theology and our countenance would sink, that we would believe the gospel in our hearts and that it would show up in our faces? Because see, if we do not have joy, then what do we have to offer our city? But if we did find joy, the kind of joy that the Spirit of Jesus makes available, then the good news, the promise of this passage is, is that then we might become a church with mirth enough to set a city to laughing, to heal the brokenness of our city, to undo the sadness of so many people that we come, encounter, come, come in contact with, that we might be a church with enough mirth to set a city to laughing were it to gush forth. And let's, so let's pray that God would do that, can we? Father, would you come by the power of the Spirit and to give us this joy, which is the fruit of your Spirit, and to cause it to do just that, to gush forth from us, that it might set the city that you've called us to, not just the city, but our families, our kids, our community groups, our community of friends, but our city as well, the southwest part of our city, uh, to, to rejoicing and celebrating you. This is the season of joy and expectation. Would you help us? Forgive us our unbelief. Help us in our unbelief. Help us to see our life not as a long list of disappointments and discouragements, but as an open-ended list of possibilities because you are a good Father who loves us and is always at work to bless and to do good. And in light of that, we have no choice but to look to you, to hope in you, to allow our hearts to expand, to receive from you all the good things that you so desire to give to us. Increase our joy, we pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the, uh, one of the phrases that... Uh, has changed my life was uh, to hear John Piper say years ago for the first time that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That the, the, the way to glorify him is to have joy in him. And so as we fight to glorify him with our joy, uh, the way we go about that fight is to, to fight to believe that whatever circumstances, whatever hardships even we find ourselves in, that he is still there at work uh, doing us good, that whatever we leave this place to face, we do not go alone, but the promise of this benediction is, is that he sends us uh, and promises to be with us and to bless us wherever we go. And so hold on to these words, keep them in your heart, uh, use them in your fight uh, for joy this week. Uh, receive uh, the promise of this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Oh,